So today we, um, we wrap up our, our CHAD Pediatric Neurology Mini Fellowship Series, um, which has been going on for, I think, five months now. Dr. Wallach kicked us off, I believe, and we welcome back Dr. Wallach, who's our section chief for Pediatric Neurology, Associate Professor of Neurology and of Pediatrics, uh, who, as we introduced you before, came to us from New Jersey after training at Columbia, New York, and Yale, as well as uh, some time in Maryland. So um, uh, a broad topic in an hour. Uh, Dr. Wallach is going to share selected topics in pediatric, pediatric epilepsy. Hey, thank you, Keith, for that introduction. Can everybody hear me? Too loud? Too soft? Just right? Okay. Okay. So today it's going to be a little bit of a potpourri. I'm going to talk about a couple of a number of different topics, just because it's impossible to talk about everything in uh, solely an hour. Uh, last month we reviewed what seizures look like and and current terminology for them, and now we're going to do an interesting variety of things. Especially if I can get this to work. First, I have nothing to declare. And so the goal of today's talk is as the typical child with seizures proceeds down the path from his initial presentation to eventual uh, diagnosis and then treatment, there's always a few steps which seem less, a bit less clear than the others. And today I want to review three, actually four, uh, aspects of this process which uh, tend to be the most troublesome. And these four topics of EEG, what does it tell us, what are its limitations, treatment, okay, there's about 20 different major drugs that we use for the treatment of seizures and another 30 or 40 minor drugs. And if I devoted even an hour to just talking about treatment, that would give us a couple of minutes each. And you probably wouldn't learn anything more than what you could look up in, in Harriet Lane. But in terms of principles, when do you start treatment? And conversely, when do you stop treatment? And kind of related to that, uh, is the fourth topic that I just recently added, which is this, the topic of sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. And then we'll finish up, as time allows us, talking about epileptic syndromes. What are they, and what does the pediatrician really need to know about them? So topic number one, the EEG. Well, some of you may remember this, this slide from, from last month, but when we approach a child with a seizure, we have a bunch of diagnostic tools, history, physical exam, laboratory tests, and of the laboratory tests, probably EEG is the most important. So that if your history suggested a seizure is a possibility, then EEG is the, is the test you want to move on to. But it's critical, absolutely critical, to understand both the utility and the limitations of this test. And I bolded limitations because that's probably the more important thing to understand. Okay, so what are the things the EEG might tell you? What are the questions that you think the EEG is going to answer? Well, first and foremost, people always want to know is does the patient really have epilepsy? And it's the primary reason one orders an EEG. Um, but it's not quite the same as asking whether a given event, which occurred in the past, was actually a seizure. Remember, that event's in the past. The EEG can't look at that one. It's only looking to tell us about what we think the risk of uh, events in the future is going to be. The uh, secondary questions include, probably most importantly, what type of seizure is it? 
i.e., is it focal or is it generalized or is it secondarily generalized or under the new uh, terminology, is it uh, focal to bilateral tonic-clonic? Uh, and that's probably one of the most important things we do get out of the EEG because that has treatment impl implications and, and helps us choose what the best drug uh, you know, might be, uh, at least for the first round. It can also tell us what the severity of the prognosis is, and it can tell us whether there's any uh, avoidable you know, precipitants. We flash those lights at the patients for a reason. We're trying to find out whether flashing lights can induce a seizure. But how effective is the EEG at answering that primary question? What, uh, in, you know, in order to know the answer to that, you have to understand a little bit about the test. So the EEG, the ways the EEG are generated by looking at the differences in the electrical potential between electrodes placed over the head. And typically, we scatter about 18 electrodes over the, uh, the uh, head. And what we're doing is we're looking at the, at the electrical difference between two of them, either neighboring pairs or there's a variety of different ways they, they can be set up. But, but the most common is this bipolar montage where each electrode is compared to its neighbor. You can also compare each electrode to some common reference point. Those are known as referential montages. Um, typically, you can look at everything compared to one ear, everything compared to the other ear. Uh, perhaps more useful is to compare everything to an average of all the other electrodes. But these differences in electrical potential plotted over time produce the waves. And those waves have different shapes and different sizes, and they occur at different frequencies. Now, the thing to remember, though, is that most patients have infrequent seizures. And so unless we're very lucky, most of the time the EEG does not capture an actual seizure. Unless, of course, the seizures are very frequent, or the EEG, conversely, the EEG is done for a long period of time, long enough to capture an episode. Thus, for the most part, when we do EEGs, we're looking at the between-seizure, or interictal brain waves, to determine an individual's tendency towards having seizures. Okay. So interictal, ictus is Latin and roughly means seizure. And so we're looking at, at the activity between uh, events or between seizures. So what do we see when we look at those funny-looking waves? Well, the main thing we're looking for is what's on the top, is sharp waves and spikes. Okay, these are the things that are most well correlated with actually having seizures. Okay, and... The definition of them is they have to be paroxysmal, clearly distinguished from the background. Okay? There needs to be an abrupt change in the polarity. That, that's what creates that sharp wave. So first, the difference between the two electrodes is, you know, for instance, negative, and, the, and the, uh, the wave goes up, and then it turns positive, and the wave goes down. It should not be of long duration. It, so it should be longer than 200 milliseconds or a fifth of a, it should be shorter than 200 milliseconds or a fifth of a second. And that's for sharp waves. Spikes should even be shorter, less than 70 milliseconds. It should have a field, meaning if you see it in one pair of electrodes, you should see it, albeit at somewhat lower amplitude in the, in the next uh, set of electrodes uh, neighboring it. And it should have two or more phases, i.e. positive plus negative or negative plus positive. Uh, probably an easier to understand definition is any way, the wave is it sharp enough that if you could take it off the screen and put it on your chair and sit on top of it, it would hurt. 
Slow waves, on the other hand, are, don't have the characteristic of spikes. Okay, their frequency is generally uh, less than eight per second. They're rounded. Okay, and they may be just kind of monophasic, not negative, positive, and then return to baseline, but uh, just kind of positive return to baseline. Okay, and once again, if you p picked it off the screen, placed it on your chair, you could sit on it, you'd feel it, but it wouldn't, you know, hurt. Okay, if you ever look at how the computer algorithms on our video EEG machines are set up to, quote, detect spikes and detect seizures, basically what they look at is the slope of the line that composes the initial part of that, uh, uh, of that uh, wave. So it's all about that slope. If you remember back to your algebra, it's all about the slope of that, um, that wave. Everything else is just minor refinements. Okay, so spikes and sharp waves are associated with having epilepsy and thus are termed epileptiform uh, waves. And the distribution of these abnormalities help us determine whether the seizure is generalized or focal. I.e., if we see it all over the brain, okay, it's generalized. And if we see it in just one part of the brain, it's uh, focal. Slow waves, on the other hand, are simply associated with brain dysfunction, which, while it may happen in epilepsy, occurs in many other conditions as well. So you have to be real careful about interpreting slow waves as being evidence that the patient has uh, epilepsy. Now, caveats. There's always a, exceptions. So the most important thing to understand is that the normal brain waves in children are sharper than those in adults. Okay? So there's a whole host of normal waves that we see in children that if you saw them in an adult would be considered abnormal. And, you know, they include things known as vertex waves, which are normal sleep phenomenon, uh, positive positive occipital sharp transients, which are also a sleep phenomenon. There's something known as 14 and 6 due to their frequency positive spikes. And there's these mid-temporal uh, sharp discharges. The old term for them was psychomotor variant. Um, these are all things that happen in kids, pretty much don't happen in adults. And one of the big dangers in this world is that a pediatric EEG gets in the hand of an adult reader um, who doesn't know about these things, isn't used to seeing them, and the study gets overread. And, uh, you know, in my own practice, I'm way more likely to recommend to a patient that they get their EEG done, for instance, here, as opposed to a neighboring facility, simply because I know that here they're going to be looked at by people who know about these things. Once you get an EEG overread, it's very hard to kind of reverse that. <laughs> it takes a great deal of effort. Um, there are many artifactual causes of sharp waves as well, electrical being the biggest ones. So electrode pops. That's when that electrode isn't glued down really tight and moves around a little bit. It'll produce an electrical uh, you know, uh, wave that uh, looks very much like a spike. And uh, can be, uh, one of the more common you know, mistakes is to you know, call uh, electrical, electrode pops as, as being uh, epileptiform activity. Your EKG can also leak into your EEG. Remember, the, the heart and indeed all muscles are electrical uh, organs. And the amount of electricity in terms of uh, voltage and amperage they produce is way more than the brain. So that even though your electrodes are far away from them, the, they, uh, they can still pick up that activity and that activity will be roughly the same as, as, 
the amplitude of that activity will be roughly the same as that coming from the brain itself. And then movements, particularly right in the area, blinking, sucking, movements of the temporal muscles, they show up all the time and uh, can be easily uh, misread as being brain activity, especially when people get in there and, they, and in this electronic world it's way easier to do, you start filtering with what are known as the filters. So, what about that next question? Or rather, the primary question, actually. Does the patient have epilepsy? And so this is all going to depend on the sensitivity and specificity of the test. Every test has a certain sensitivity and specificity. Right? Even blood tests. So the sensitivity of a single routine EEG, depending on what study you look at, ranges anywhere from a low of 29% to a high of 55%. And that's as fine as they're having a diagnostic abnormality, okay? Sleep and sleep deprivation, you know, correlate with those higher sensitivities, and lack of sleep correlates with the lower sensitivity. So when our routine EEG, which around here we run for about 30 minutes, some places only run them for 20 minutes, um, you know, sleep doesn't get achieved all that frequently, despite the fact that, you know, the patient may have been told to, to stay up a few hours later the night before. Uh, and so probably our sensitivity of a single routine EEG around here is probably in the neighborhood of 30 to 40%. If you repeat the routine EEGs, and there's been you know, several studies now, and they've looked up to a total of seven routine EEGs, you'll get that number up. So you add about 10% with the, first, with the second EEG and a little bit less with each subsequent EEG until you reach a plateau that's somewhere between 60 and 80%, once again, depending on the study you look at. Um, those last three, those numbers 5, 6, and 7, don't add much to the total, because if you are going to see something 90% of the time, you'll see it by that fourth EEG. <coughs> okay, well, what about if we do a longer EEG? You know, all those 24-hour studies that we, we seem to order. Okay, well, it's kind of interesting. A third of them have epileptiform activity within 20 minutes. And so that correlates very well with what we already knew about the studies from routine EEGs, only a 30 to 40% sensitivity, okay? But within 24 hours, 89% of the people who do have epilepsy are gonna show an abnormality, okay? Once again, the law of diminishing returns. You go out to 48 hours, it was 91%, and 72 hours, it was 92%. Okay, so you really get the most bang for your buck from that first 24 hours. Remember, we're just talking about the interictal activity now. Obviously, if you actually capture an episode, you learn a bit more. Okay, so the bottom line is that the longer you sample for, the longer you sample that activity for, the better your sensitivity is. I kind of think it's kind of like, you know, drawing bloods for uh, SBE. Okay, the more you sample, the more likely you are to pick up that bacteria. What about specificity? Okay, and if I always thought that the limited sensitivity of EEG, I've always referred to as the dirty, dark secret of, of EEG, specificity is an equally dirty, dark secret. There's a fair chunk of false positives. Okay? It's interesting that there haven't been all that many studies of this over the years. And certainly, 
if anything, they've slowed down in terms of their frequency. So you'll see a lot of citations here to, to studies from, you know, 1968, 1971, okay? Because it was easier back in those days to say, I'm going to take a bunch of normal children and do an EEG on them. That becomes a financially difficult thing to do in, in today's day and age. And since it's not associated with any you know, ultimate product like a, a new drug or something, it's, it's hard to get this stuff done nowadays. So way back in 71, Eagle Olufsen. I don't know how much his, his, the first part of his name contributed to his decision to study EEG. <laughs> but he discovered 2% of non-epileptiform children, non-epileptic children, had epileptiform discharges on EEG, okay? We see 3.5% of, of nearly 4,000 children 6 to 13 years old in the study done in 1980. 4.5% of children thought to be normal uh, in a 94 study. And then we had 6.5% of this cohort of 382 in the most recent study. And the only study out of this group, by the way, to use digital EEG as opposed to the old stuff writing on with uh, pen and paper. I don't know that they actually had normal children. They were looking at children who were referred to them for, quote, minor head trauma. I.e., in other words, they went to their concussion clinic and they did a bunch of EEGs. And they came up with a higher rate than most, but then again, you can argue that perhaps that wasn't the most normal group of children um, to, to be looking at. It's phrased a little bit differently. Troya Berg, who's actually a fairly large giant in the field, looked at just children with focal spikes on the EEG and found that only 83% of them had seizures, meaning 17% false positive rate. So you have to be careful about even how you interpret those spikes when you do find them. So just to summarize, there's a test of limited sensitivity with lots of false negatives, and even though you read it all the time, a single EEG cannot be used to rule out seizure, but you read, although Everybody, including myself, is guilty of sometimes writing. Obtain a routine EEG to rule out seizure. The specificity is also imperfect. The false positive rate probably averages out to somewhere in the range of 2 to 4%. But despite these limitations, the positive EEG does help to confirm that your patient has seizures and then can give you that additional uh, guidance as to whether it's a focal or a generalized seizure that helps guide you know, therapy. Okay. So now, armed with our, both our history and the results of our EEG, we can now enter the topic of treatment. When do we decide to go ahead and actually start treating a patient? Is it after the first seizure? Is it some later number? Historically, prior to the 1980s, it was thought that if you had a single seizure, you went on medication, and then you stayed on it for the rest of your life. And indeed, the, the first studies to kind of overturn this uh, paradigm to uh, overturn this uh, paradigm came out of the Mayo Clinic. I've always found that interesting, but the reason it came out of Mayo was um, Mayo Clinic has always done a lot of really good epidemiologic studies, at least in neurology, and part of that reason is they have a very stable population. Um, 
Almost nobody moves in or out of Rochester County, Minnesota. <laughs> Furthermore, there aren't a lot of places to get your health care in Rochester County, Minnesota, other than the Mayo Clinic. So they have a very good capture ratio. And then they've always had excellent uh, medical records keeping systems. And, uh, you know, in the, in the pre-electronic era, they also had very good nursing support of, in terms of people who would comb through charts and, and extract information for you. And so basically the story was one day they were sitting around and saying, you know, we remember a bunch of people who used to come to us for their seizure care, and they're no longer coming here. Whatever happened to them? Well, we kind of know nobody ever moves out of Rochester County, Minnesota. So if they're not coming here anymore, what happened? Did they die? What happened? So they, they pulled out a bunch of old records, and, and they had their nurses call up. And they found out, surprisingly, that um, the people hadn't died, and they hadn't moved away. They were still there. But many of them had stopped taking their medicines. And the most astounding fact, as far as I was concerned, that the average length of time people took their medicines without having a seizure before they decided to go against medical advice and stop taking their medicine was 18 years. And from, from my standpoint, that um, was an amazing number for someone who can't remember to take his antibiotic for 10 days. Um, and then, so what they did then was they said, wow, that's really amazing. And so then they took people who were still on their medicine and said, had them stop after eight years. And what happened? And they found out that roughly 60% stayed seizure-free, 40% had their seizures come back. Then they repeated that study and, uh, after just four years. And they got virtually the same numbers. And then they repeated it after two years, and they got virtually the same numbers. And so that's when we kind of came to this, the current idea that um, we treat for two years, and if we don't have any seizures for a two-year period, we think about whether or not we want to continue you know, longer. Um, interestingly, the Mayo people stopped at two years. They never investigated one year. Other groups have looked at one year, and it doesn't look like it's as good. So pretty much people have come down on the, on the two-year side of things. So that's kind of the bottom line in terms of when to, to stop. But let's look at the actual studies. And the first thing we need to know is the difference between a provoked seizure and an unprovoked seizure. We're always talking, these studies all talk about unprovoked seizures. So we want to eliminate the febrile seizures. We want to eliminate the seizure that happens because you've had some head trauma. Similarly, we want to limit the, eliminate those seizures that might occur right at the peak of an encephalitis but never recur. And similarly, seizures with proximal causes like hypoglycemia or hyponatremia, we're not counting those. We're worried about the people who have seizures without an immediately apparent cause that are then going to be at risk for recurrence. Okay? And in general, these are things that might be caused by genetic causes, structural causes, uh, uh, metabolic causes uh, of people who actually have recurrent metabolic conditions. Um, and remember that the definition of epilepsy is recurrent of uh, unprovoked seizures without fever. Okay? So the purpose of treatment is to prevent seizures. And as, as uh, we're going to find out, not everybody who has a first seizure will go on to have another. 
And the decision to initiate treatment results from the balancing the risks of having another seizure against the risks of treatment. And so once again, we're making that distinction between the provoked uh, seizure, where the recurrence risk is generally low, and the unprovoked seizure, which back until the early 1980s, nobody really knew what the risk of recurrence was. But to summarize, we now have a number of different studies that show that the risk of recurrence following a first unprovoked seizure in a child is somewhere in the neighborhood of 27 to 52%. And perhaps what remains the best study of all was one done by uh, Shlomo Chinar and his, his colleagues at Einstein in New York, who followed 407 children for a mean of almost 10 years. And they found that following a first seizure, your risk of having a second seizure, well, 29% had one by one year of life, uh, one year subsequent, 37% at two years, 43% at five years, 46% at 10 years. Okay? So if you have a first seizure, your risk of having, you know, subsequent seizures is only at best 50%. And um, therefore, this study was actually kind of uh, procedural train, changing for most of us, and that we stopped treating the first seizure. And we started saying, well, maybe we should wait for at least a second seizure. There's some interesting data, you know, figures you know, tucked away in this data. And that's that actually, when you looked at the people who did have further seizures, half of them had fewer than five seizures. Another half of them had, had, you know, five to, uh, had more than five seizures, and 13% of them had more than 10 seizures. So that really when we look at epilepsy in childhood, you know, many people have a relatively small number of seizures. What happens after you've had two seizures? Well, after two seizures, Chenard and company found out that 71% of the children will go on to have another. And that's if you looked up to five years out. But 57% of them had it within that first year. And then after having three seizures, 81% of children will go on to have another. Okay, 70% within that first year. Okay, so this was basically the data that shaped practice for quite a while um, and continues to shape practice. Okay, we frequently, most of the time, do not treat after the first seizure. We may get started after two seizures, or we may even wait to three seizures, especially if we have some sort of doubt about one of the episodes. Are there factors that increase your risk? Sure. There's what was termed remote symptomatic etiology, i.e. there was some sort of event that happened in the past that potentially damaged the brain. You know, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, for instance, or uh, uh, some sort of CNS infection. Okay? And so that increased your relative risk a bit in the beginning and, and fourfold after two, when you were two years out at the time of your first seizure. Having an abnormal EEG doubles your relative risk. Uh, seizures while asleep has some influence, increases your risk. Prior febrile seizures increase your risk. So that's kind of the other side of the coin that we all knew about, which is that having some febrile seizures does increase your risk of later epilepsy, although it's a mild sort of effect. And certainly having a Todd's paresis, i.e. inability to move the part of the body that was affected afterwards increases your risk. And that's just because Todd's paresis is a good indication that the seizure was actually focal in nature. Okay. If you look at those same factors, 
after the person's had two seizures, actually some of them fell out, but the, that remote damage, one left, and having a second seizure within three months of the first one increased your relative risk considerably. What about if you treat after two seizures? Well, it does re reduce the risk of another seizure for the first three months, but actually is not that effective at preventing all seizures when you look at it for a longer period of time. So getting back to this question, when do we treat? Well, is the glass half empty or is it half full? How high does the risk of recurrence have to be to justify starting treatment with all its inherent you know, side effects? And so many people use 50%. If your risk is less than 50%, don't treat. If your risk is more than 50%, you should treat. Okay? So unless you have some one of those risk factors, including an abnormal, you know, and your EEG is normal, you don't treat. After two or three seizures, you do treat, regardless of whether you have risk factors or not. Okay? A, um, the presence of whether you have one of these epilepsy syndromes may also affect the, the decision, because we know that some epilepsy, some people with a given epilepsy syndrome will only have a few seizures. That's just the way the, the syndrome is, and other people have a lot. So the syndrome diagnosis does influence you there. It result, these studies resulted in kind of the traditional epilepsy definition, i.e. that it's a disorder characterized by two or more unprovoked seizures occurring more than 24 hours apart. So multiple seizures within 24 hours for these studies all just counted as one. And that was decided on a very practical basis because the researchers found that when you looked into these histories, it was sometimes was unclear whether the person had just one seizure or whether, which lasted kind of for a long period of time, or whether there was one seizure that then kind of went away followed quickly by another seizure. And instead of kind of look at that, and trying to tease that out, they just took the easy route and said, anything within 24 hours counts as one. But as a result of that, it actually influenced what beca then became the definition of when you have epilepsy as opposed to just having a seizure. Interestingly, quite recently, 2014, that definition of epilepsy was refined. Not only does, can you have, be called epilepsy when you have at least two unprovoked uh, seizures, which is what the old definition was. They, re they refined it a little bit more to include reflex seizures, uh, which in technically are provoked. Those are those photosensitive seizures that are provoked by flashing lights. But they decided that even though that's, quote, provoked, it should be included as, uh, those people should be included as having epilepsy. Or if you have one unprovoked seizure and a probability of further seizures of at least 60%, i.e. the same risk you would have if you'd had, if you'd had two or three seizures. Um, and so that number mostly refers to those people with those abnormal EEGs. And we said that if you have one seizure plus an abnormal EEG, your risk of recurrence is about 60%. So once again, they spelled that out. Many people already were treating after one seizure with an abnormal EEG, but they spelled it out that those people should actually be considered as having uh, epilepsy. And finally, if you diagnose an epilepsy syndrome, okay, so <laughs> epilepsy syndrome is where you talk about it at the end, but if you have a defined syndrome, you don't have to have two or three seizures before you decide that they have epilepsy. You can have just, you know, for instance, one seizure plus conclusive, fairly conclusive proofs that you have one of those syndromes, okay? So 
It's kind of interesting. People made a big deal about this. I don't think it particularly changed practice to, to kind of spell this out. It was more or less what people were doing. But, you know, the world of, of neurology felt it was, uh, at least these folks, felt it was necessary to uh, spell it out. Why treat it all? Okay, this is one slide. I have a whole half-hour talk on this. Um, the biggest reason is this idea that seizures beget seizures, that the more seizures you have, the more likely you are to have few, future seizures, and if we can just control the seizures, then we change the whole course of a person's epilepsy. It's actually fairly unclear that this is true. Evidence is lacking. The best evidence is for those seizures emanating from the temporal lobes, and it's based on the kindling model in rats, where you give rats repeated shocks to generate seizures, and the more times you do this, the easier it becomes to generate the next seizure until eventually they start, start having seizures on their own without the electric shock. Okay? It's never been proven that this happens in humans. Okay? And that's because it's kind of hard to imagine somebody volunteering for that as a study. Okay? We think that repeated seizures may have cognitive effects. Okay, and there's some data uh, from the neuropsychiatric world, you know, supporting that. The biggest thing is the potential for injury. Obviously, if you have a seizure while driving, you get in an accident. If you have a, a seizure while you're at some sort of a height, you could fall and, and injure yourself. And finally, there's sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. And it appears, especially, you know, in relation to the latest data, that treatment Effective treatment may produce the risk of that. Against the idea of treating is some natural history studies where we look at the course of epilepsy in parts of the world where anticonvulsant medicines are not available, and we find out that the ultimate outcomes don't look all that bad. And the, obviously the, the con is when many people have just a relatively small number of seizures, only 13% have more than 10, is it really worth all those side effects uh, to, to prevent them? Okay, similarly, when to stop treatment? Balance of risks and benefits. What's the likelihood of the recurrence off of the medicines? Once again, what are the dangers of injury? Should you have a seizure once you're off of your medicine? But in, uh, in favor of it, though, is you avoid some of those longer-term risks, side effects of medication, uh, including osteopenia and including birth defects. Okay. I kind of gave you the, the bottom line in this already just because it's such a neat story. But if you look at what the outcomes after withdrawal of anticonvulsants, there have been a number of studies over time now, ranging from 68 to the most uh, recent one in 2011, uh, which was actually conducted in Connecticut. It turns out that um, the people in Connecticut, led by the folks at Yale, kind of got together with the University of Connecticut people and, and the, a few private practices in, uh, of pediatric neurology in Connecticut, and they were able to capture quite a large percentage, you know, a, a large majority of the, of the children with epilepsy in the state. And that became their, their cohort that they looked at. But the answer was, is that when you took people off their medicine, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 70, 75% remain seizure-free off of their medicines. When you take people off of medicines, the recurrences tend to happen soon, nearly half within the first six months, and 60 to 80%, probably closer to 80% within the first year of taking people off their medicine. 
And those are kind of important numbers to keep in mind because parents will always ask you about that. Those studies, mm -hmm. it still is not really helping me with the when, because it says that when you take them off, this is what happened. But was that after five years, 10 years, 12 years? So okay, most people use two years. Okay, that was based on those. That was based on those Mayo Clinic, you know, studies. They they looked. They took their original group, which was 16 years, taken off on their own, and then eight years, four years, and two years. Okay. Um, are there any things that make it riskier to take people off? Well, sure. If there was permanent damage at some time in the past, that's a very old thing. Adolescent onset had an had a increased risk of fourfold. There was a question as to whether extremely young age also increased your risk. It didn't really work out that way. Your duration and number of seizures. People who have had a large number of seizures are less likely to become seizure, you know, be able to be, come off their medicine than people with smaller numbers. And similarly, if you had multiple seizure types, this uh, became more uh, of, a, of, a, of a risk. As we'll see when we get to the, um, the uh, syndrome section, in part that's because these numbers have certain specific syndromes in them. Okay, an abnormal EEG at the time of withdrawal increased your risk, but not hugely, about one and a half fold. Okay, so some parents like to use this. You know, we do an EEG when we're considering withdrawal, and if it's abnormal, that will motivate many parents to say, let's try, keep them on it for another couple of years, we do the EEG, and, and wait until that EEG returns to normal. Similarly, your epilepsy syndromes. Benign melanic epilepsy, which we'll talk about later, very low recurrence once you get them off of the medicine. Juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, another one of the big syndromes, very high recurrence. The message for those of us in pediatrics, though, is if at first you don't succeed, try again. Okay, the children's brain is continuing to change at a much more rapid rate than those of, of our uh, adult colleagues. Okay, so contrary to the adult experience, the risk of succeeding on a, on a second attempt is reasonable in pediatrics, whereas it's extremely low in adults. So if you're an adult, i.e. over the 21, and you haven't had seizures for a few years, they will try to take you off your medicine, but if the seizures come back, then you go on it and you stay on it for the rest of your life because your chances of succeeding on a second attempt is low. On a kid, though, if you've tried taking them off when they're you know, age 8 and the seizures came back, it's worth waiting a few more years and trying again. And people argue over whether you should wait four years this time instead of two years, and that's always just a conversation you have with the parents. Okay, so once again, the world of epilepsy, the International League Against, against Epilepsy, has been making, making a lot of revisions lately, the last few years. And so they redefined what epilepsy is, including a couple more categories. But then in the lowest part of that, they talked about when epilepsy can be considered to be resolved. Okay? So you can consider resolved for somebody who's had an age-dependent syndrome but is now past the applicable age, or anyone who has remained seizure-free for the last 10 years with at least no medicine for at least the last five of those years. Okay? So they just formalized it. Okay? Why is that formalization important? Well, believe it or not, it's, you know, the formalization of a, of, of a pre-existing health condition, 
Okay, it does have implications for their health insurance. It has implications for things like driving. Okay, topic number three: sudden unexplained death, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. It used to be called unexplained, but they decided that unexpected was a better term. Okay, once again, hot off the presses: a new guideline from the American Association of uh, Neurology in association with the American Epilepsy Society, just published this past April. Uh, probably the best thing here is, as a result of their careful meta-analysis, they came up with some decent incidence figures. So 0.2 people per 1,000 patient years. In other words, if you follow 4,500 children with epilepsy, one of them you would expect to uh, suffer from SUDEP, i.e. die, uh, within that year. Okay, that's compared to about one in a thousand adults. What are the risk factors? Generalized tonic-clonic seizures are the biggest risk factor. Okay, and indeed, if you have three or more GTCs per year, it increases your risk 15-fold. So these are the, this is probably one of the best reasons for saying we need to be aggressive about treatment of seizures. Okay. Very interesting. Lack of nocturnal supervision. So a lot of SUDEP actually happens at night when a person's asleep. The presence of another individual in the bedroom actually decreases your risk. That person had to be, by definition, at least 10 years old and of normal intelligence. And even though those people are not informed in any way what they should do, presumably having that other person, person around stimulates the patient to breathe in those incipient you know, stages where this might be happening. Nobody knows the exact mechanism. Uncontrolled epilepsy, which kind of goes along with having a lot of GTCs, but uncontrolled epilepsy even if, it, if they're not generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Okay? And you know, looking at it the other way, seizure freedom really seems to have a significant decrease in the risk. And then for those of you who are interested, there's a long list of 50 or so factors that have either little or no influence on the uh, risk of SUDEP. So things that people worried about, like nocturnal seizures, doesn't seem to affect it. Being on one anticonvulsant as opposed to another doesn't seem to affect it. Being on you know, a variety of different uh, uh, psychiatric drugs doesn't seem to affect it. Your age of onset, how long it's been going on, doesn't seem to affect it. That structural lesion doesn't even seem to affect the risk of SUDEP. And then the big question for all those, us in pediatrics, is what do we tell the parents? Do we tell them about this risk? Does it, you know, will that generate too much anxiety? I mean, it's a pretty low risk, you know, 1 in 4,500, 4, although you can say that's per year, and cumulatively it, it's going to start sounding like it, it's worse. Well, the society said try to reduce the anxiety by presenting it as both the risk of getting it and the risk of not getting it. So that in the same breath that you tell them, well, the risk of SUDEP is 1 in 4,500 per year, explain to them that, also, that that also means that 4,499 out of 5,000 will not be affected. And I'm sorry. And the first part of this, though, is that there have been several studies, looking retrospectively, where they find out that both the uh, you know, patients and parents actually prefer to be told of the risk, even though that risk is low. And probably the most telling of those studies is when they, when they queried the parents of kids who had died of SUDEP. 
they found out that most of those parents said, gee whiz, we wish somebody had told us ahead of time. So it is a conversation that uh, you probably should have with the parents. Um, I just try to do it when the, when the child's not present. <laughs> Finally, epileptic syndromes. Good, we got time. What are they and what do we need to know about them? So if you remember in that three levels of diagnosis, the first thing we want to do is, is the classification of the seizure type. The second level is what causes it. And the third is this syndrome diagnosis. Okay, just to remind everybody what I talked about last time, what this new classification system as of March of this year looks like, focal onset seizures, generalized onset seizures, unknown onset seizures. Okay. The last time the International League Against Epilepsy created some list of epilepsy syndromes was in their 2010 revision, which was never formally adopted. But they listed 33 specific syndromes by their age of uh, onset. And so you can see that three of them occurred in the neonatal period, seven in infancy, 11 in childhood, um, and adolescent onset uh, to adult onset in six of them. So the vast majority of them happen in the pediatric age range, and that's why pediatric neurologists are constantly talking about syndromes, and it's a minor topic of discussion amongst adult neurologists. Many of these syndromes, though, are pretty uncommon. But the general pediatrician needs to know probably is about the big four. Number one, West syndrome. What we, used, uh, what, we always called it West syndrome, but we also call it infantile spasms. Under the new 2017 terminology, the word infantile spasms has gone away and it's now to be called epileptic spasms. So peak onset is about four months of age, uh, rarely before two months of age. Um, consists of transient contractions of the trunk, neck, and extremities. We saw a video of this last month. Um, they, they tend to occur in clusters and often on the sleep-wake transition. There's a very distinctive EEG pattern known as hypsarrhythmia. They tend to be, uh, have developmental delays. And in general, there's a poor prognosis in terms that the majority of them go on to have persistent seizures in later life as well as developmental delays. Treatment remains in this day and age, uh, ACTH. It's resistant to most standard anticonvulsants, but if you do have tuberous sclerosis, the uh, otherwise little used anticonvulsant, vigapatrin, is actually slightly superior to ACTH. Childhood absence epilepsy. Okay, once again, maybe you remember from uh, last month, we saw a couple of videos of this. Okay, onset is typically somewhere in the range of 4 to 10 or 2 to 12 years. The seizure type, okay, according to our new 2017 terminology, this would be called typical absence. Uh, it's common. It's 2 to 15% of all childhood epilepsy. Seems to be autosomal dominant, but with a very incomplete penetrance. The seizures themselves just consist of behavioral arrest, i.e. stopping what you're doing and staring. Sudden onset, no postictal phase, generally lasts 10 to 15 seconds. Okay, up to a third of them might go on to also have generalized tonic-clonic seizures and a distinctive EEG pattern. Okay, I think pretty much everybody's you know, fairly familiar with this. Your treatments are generally ethosuximide or valproic acid. Lamotrigine is less effective. Um, you know, just general practice 
led us to know in pediatric neurology, we all thought that lamotrigine worked about only about half the time compared to ethosuximide and bilpolic acid, both of which worked about 80 to 90 percent of the time. And in a, in a very nice NIH study, you know, uh, multi-center study, they looked at the three drugs in comparison because everybody thought that, you know, lamotrigine has fewer side effects and would be a wonderful alternative to the other two. And they basically confirmed what most people's experience showed, that the lamotrigine failed to work for about half, pe half the people. So we really do go back and, and tend to use the ethosuximide and the valproic acid. Um, childhood absence of epilepsy frequently resolves after two to six years of seizures. The earlier you're onset, the more likely you are to uh, have resolution, but up to one-third continue into adolescence or adulthood, and uh, a small percentage, 10 15, uh, to 18%, we actually then develop juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Okay. We'll talk about JME in a minute. First, we'll talk, now talk about benign epilepsy with central temporal spikes, or BECTS. This is a, a syndrome that used to be called benign Orlandic epilepsy, but then they decided that they, they liked the newer term better. Nowadays, with the 2017 terminology, they're kind of stuck behind the eight ball because they said they want to stop using the word benign. But benign in your general seizure classification hasn't caught up with the world of syndromes yet, and so this is still the official name of this syndrome. Um, you know, under that new terminology, we would call this seizure type as being self-limited, that's the replacement for the word benign, focal-aware clonic seizures. I don't know. I think Bexer VRE was the easier way to say that. Um, the onset is anywhere between 2 and 13 years of age, with the peak age being somewhere around 9. Uh, these children generally have normal development, um, although there is some neuropsychiatric evidence that if they fall into that group that has a large number of seizures, there may be uh, some impairment there. Once again, seems to be autosomal dominant. The seizure type itself is typically focal motor involving the face, i.e., the patient starts twitching on one side of the face, preserved consciousness generally at that stage, but it may then secondarily generalize. Once again, a term we're not supposed to use under the 2017 uh, terminology. We're supposed to say focal progressing to bilateral tonic clonic. Another phrase that just rolls off the tongue. Um, the EEG is fairly distinctive. You see spikes coming from the central temporal region. It should be, they should be visible on both sides, although not at the same time. Not everyone with spikes has seizures. Okay? So remember, this is autosomal dominantly inherited. And it seems like the EEG pattern is very well inherited, but the actual having of seizures is not well inherited. So in this disorder, your spikes are many, but your seizures are relatively infrequent. And sometime in adolescence, generally around the age of 16, essentially 100% resolve. If somebody doesn't resolve, you have to go back and look at the diagnosis because you probably had it wrong. And we'll wrap up with one minute on juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Okay, onsets adolescence. It's traditionally been said 12 to 18, but the Camfields, who are up in... Uh, Nova Scotia, you know, reviewed the Nova Scotia data, and actually they found an age of onset of 10 and a half years, plus or minus four. So the age of onset probably includes a lot of younger kids and what's traditionally been thought. 
Once again, it's fairly frequent. It's 4 to 10% of all epilepsy. People generally have three different types of seizures. You have myoclonic seizures, i.e. bilateral myoclonic jerks that tend to occur in the early morning hours, the first couple of hours after you wake up, although they do sometimes occur at other times of the day. You can have absent seizures where you just stop and stare for 10 or 15 seconds, and then you have a few generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Kind of have this diagnosis, you pretty much have to have the myoclonic part, you don't necessarily have to have the other two types. Once again, fairly distinctive EEG pattern. Uh, treatment remains a problem here, okay? It's hard to find an agent that controls all three different types of seizures. The one that seems to do the best is uh, valproic acid. The difficulty with valproic acid is because of its potential for birth defects, we tend not to want to use it in uh, women of childbearing age. Um, and if you do use it, you have to make you know, sure that they have you know, very good birth control in place. Alternatives include lamotrigine, which doesn't do much for the, for the uh, myoclonus, or rather pretty much does nothing for the myoclonus. You have levetiracetam, maybe the next best choice because it works uh, you know, f for the myoclonus, doesn't work so well uh, for the other types of seizures, particularly the absent seizures. You can try topiramate. Uh, you can try zonisamide. Most of us probably don't use zonisamide very much, but there's actually a fairly good history of its use in, um, in Japan uh, you know, for this uh, type of seizure and absence seizures. And then uh, benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are very good at controlling the myoclonus part, and then you use one of these other agents to control the other types of seizures. Okay, prognosis. This was one of those things that, you know, remember I mentioned already, the rate of recurrence is very high when you come off of medicines. And, you know, for many years, everybody has said basically you need, just need to stay on your medicine for the rest of your life. But it's interesting. Everybody always had one or two exceptions where the patient decided to stop their own medicines and seemed to do okay. And so the one study that's looked at this, numbers were small, but they followed up 24 patients 25 years later. And they found that uh, 18 were seizure-free and then were attempted to discontinue their medication. Seven of those failed and then just restarted their medicine. Of the ones who stayed off their medicine, 17% were completely seizure-free, 13% had only the myoclonic jerks, and another 8% had myoclonic jerks plus some seizures, but the seizures were quite rare. So you can say that something in the neighborhood of 30% it may be reasonable for them if they're truly motivated and want to do it to try coming off their medicine. And syndromes are important, especially when it comes to children with epilepsy, and the important ones are the ones we just discussed, and that's my last slide. treated, um, but it, I'm sorry, with the 10-year the study, meaning in terms of the total number of seizures they had? Yes. Yeah. The numbers that had additional seizures. Right. So they, um, 
it was an interesting mixture, and, you, and you're right, and that's one of the, the faults of the studies and one of the things they tried to address in that later uh, you know, Connecticut study from 2011 was that it was actually turned out to be a mixed bunch. Some of them were treated, you know, some of them uh, were not, because at the time nobody knew what the risk of recurrence was. So some of them opted not to treat, but it was a, it was a dirty group. Well, it is 9 o'clock, so with the um, update on the